This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is Friday, April 7th, 2023, and I'm Natalia Castro from Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. This week, we are discussing neurodiversity and national security. It is no secret that our nation needs to harness a wide variety of skills, talents, and abilities to meet growing national security needs. Today, agencies will hear about how they can harness the potential of unique cognitive talents to improve their workforce and mission delivery. Let me start by introducing our guests. First, joining me from Intelligence and National Security Alliance and the Intelligence and National Security Foundation is President Suzanne Wilson-Heckenberg. Suzanne, thank you for being here today and welcome to Fed Talk. Thank you. Next, from the MITRE Corporation, we have the Neurodiverse Talent Enablement and Cyber Engagement Program Lead, Teresa Thomas. Teresa, thank you for being here and welcome to Fed Talk. Thanks, glad to be here. Finally, joining us from the RAND Corporation is Senior Management Scientist Courtney Weinbaum. Welcome to Fed Talk and thanks for joining, Courtney. Thanks for having us. For today's discussion, we are going through the entire employee life cycle, from recruitment to leadership, to discuss how federal agencies, particularly our national security agencies, can meet their mission through the inclusivity of neurodiversity. But in order to set the stage for this conversation, I want to give each of our guests an opportunity to tell us about themselves, their organizations, and their work. Courtney, let's start with you and the RAND Corporation. Thank you so much for having us for this conversation. This is such an important topic to all of us. We all feel very passionate about this. Um, At RAND, I focus on intelligence programs as well as space programs. I have a physics background, so I do not come from the HR world at all. Um, but this topic came up a couple years ago because of Suzanne, and so I'll let her talk about that, but it's because of her that, that I even started thinking about this, and I went to Rand and said, you know, I think this is worth some, some funding, and, and we should look into this, and I got a resounding yes, um, and we're so happy we could do this study. Um, we did the study last year, and we're really excited to have it published last week, so listeners, while they're listening, can go on www.rand.org and download the, the report for free. The PDF is free. There's a six-page version and a 50-page version, so you know you, can, you all can decide which one you want to read. I will add that 50 pages sounds like a lot, but I flew through it. It's really interesting. It's super captivating, very well written. It's worth the whole thing. That's um, great to hear. <laughs> Courtney, since you previewed Suzanne a little bit, Suzanne, please tell us about yourself and your work um, and kind of what goes on at, within the Alliance and the Foundation. Absolutely. First of all, I just want to thank um, FedTalk for uh, having the vision to highlight this important conversation. What really was the catalyst for the Intelligence and National Security Alliance and Foundation to get involved with this is several years ago, I had one of our corporate members um, come to me and say, do you know if individuals on the autism spectrum can get clearances? Is there anything in writing about whether or not they are eligible for clearances? And I said, well, as far as I know, There is nothing out there that says they are not eligible, but the question is, are they able to get through the process, particularly um, the very lengthy FS-96 they have to complete, and if they need a poly, how are they going to manage that process? And then it was of interest, and then a few months later, actually another corporate member or a government member came to me and they brought up something regarding neurodiversity in the intelligence community. And after two or three of our constituencies 
brought it up, it was no longer something that was just a personal passion of mine. It was something that was really important to the workforce and the intelligence and, and national security community. And so over time, we came together with some other like-minded organizations that all fill kind of a different gap among the neurodiversity constituency. And we formed an organization called the NATSEC Neurodiversity Network. And we can talk a little more about that later on if you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. And we hear from listeners so often that, you know, they're not sure of the best way to raise these issues, who to have the conversation with. And I want to emphasize the importance of groups like the Alliance and the Foundation to serve as a place for employees to go to, for corporate partners to go to, to, to raise these issues. Because as this report demonstrates, as your work demonstrates, um, when people are willing to have the conversation or are willing to start the conversation, there can be real movement um, in, in these areas. And that's so important to just be willing to raise your hand and say, hey, I'm noticing a problem. Can we talk about it? Thank you, uh, Suzanne, for being here and for your work. Teresa, heading to you, can you tell us a little bit about your work and about MITRE? Um, sure, yeah, I can talk about MITRE's engagement in the work as well. So um, I was interested in neurodiversity in general because I have a child on the spectrum, which is really the story you hear a lot. A lot of folks who are, who are interested and engaged have somebody they love who's on the spectrum. And so that's how I got started paying attention to what was going on. Uh, at MITRE, we run two programs. One is an internship program in-house for students on the spectrum. We recruit from schools that have uh, good support programs for them. And we provide some wraparound supports for them and for their teams and their managers while they're at MITRE during their internships. That's been We've been doing that since about 2019. It's been going pretty well. And the other program is called the Neurodiverse Federal Workforce, which is uh, a series of pilots that uh, we hope it's a series. It has been one pilot so far at NGA, but uh, doing a lot of just acting as subject matter experts and really talking with agencies and, and helping federal agencies explore what it means for them to be neuroinclusive in all their practices. So. Um, that's how I got engaged in that work. Those are the things we do. I uh, talked with Courtney a little bit about this um, report and she let me come along for the ride, which is really what it has ended up being. Um, just being there to say uh, yes, yes, while she does it. So this has been really great. And um, you know, to Suzanne's point, we've heard a lot about the thing that is clearances and the thing that is uh, applying for these roles. And so we're, we're learning and this is a fun chance to share what we've learned, I think. Absolutely. And it's great to hear about the internship pathways that you guys have created within your own organization, because I know one of the things we're really going to talk about in this program is recruitment um, and really bringing neurodiverse people into the federal workforce and, and making them feel like they have a place. And so hearing, I'm, I'm excited to hear more about the kind of pathways that you guys have created within your own organization um, and how these pilots can really create models within the federal workforce. I think one of the most important things to do when we have these conversations is to really get on the same page about what we're speaking about and the best way to speak about it. And so I wanna ask you guys, you know, that question, what is the best way to speak about neurodiversity? What does the term neurodiversity mean? And what mm. is the, the people that we're talking about when we have this conversation? So I'll throw that out to the panel. Teresa, I'll do you want to yeah. take that one? Yeah, I'll slide out on that one. Um, uh, neurodiversity, technically, the, the term neurodiverse means uh, diverse in our neurons, right? It's our brains. Our brains are all different. Uh, if you want to, to narrow that down, um, the terminology is fluid. So know that uh, the terminology will be wrong um, a lot of the times because, it, it, first of all, it's very personal. And then secondly, this, this field is becoming and so is the language. So neuro, um, neurodistinct is the term I'm hearing most right now. Neurodivergent was the term I was hearing before. And usually that means uh, if your diversity has fallen into an area that causes you issues. So that's gonna be um, autism, ADHD, dyslexia, uh, Tourette's, uh, dyspraxia. Usually when we're talking about 
neurodiversity, neurodivergence, neurodistinctness, neurospiciness, we tend to be talking about autism, but uh, that is not the only thing that it covers. Thank you, Teresa. Uh, Courtney, Suzanne, do you have anything to add there? I'll add um, what we did include in our study, because you're going to have listeners who are familiar with some diagnoses and want to know, was it included, was it not? Um, so autism spectrum disorder, yes. Um, obviously, that was part of the study. ADHD was part of the study. Dyslexia, dyscalculia, dysplasia. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing any of those wrong. Tourette's syndrome. Some people put it in neurodiversity. Some people don't. We did. Um, and then we say, and others, as a way of just saying that there's, there's going to be others. Um, but there were things that we scoped out. And I think that's important for listeners to understand, too. We had to make a decision on whether we include all mental health diagnoses, because anxiety and depression um, can be co-occurring diagnoses with some of these others. They, they tend to have high rates of co-occurrence. And then there's plenty of other diagnoses like obsessive compulsive disorder and, and so on. Um, we scoped all those out. So for any listeners who are saying, you know, I have three of these diagnoses, or, or what about those? Do you cover those? Um, because we're focused on the national security community, we said, you know, the national security community has policies for handling mental health. There's security clearance policies, the military services policies. You, know, you could debate whether they're good policies or bad policies and how they're actually implemented in practice, but there are no policies for neurodivergence. And mm -hmm. so we really want to focus on neurodivergence and not on mental health. So we did decide to, to not include mental health in this study. Thank you for explaining that distinction. I think it's an important one and really, you know, doing it based on what are there already policies for versus what there are not. I think that that, you know, provides a really unique angle to your study and I appreciate you providing that clarity. Um, I know we're gonna have to stop in just a moment for our break, but I wanted to give Susanna a chance in case there were any final thoughts on this kind of question. So I just wanted to add whether it's neurospicy, neurodiverse, neurodistinct, Anything that has some type of historical stigma around it, I think it's important to just pick a term and use it and, and show that you are educating yourself to better understand it. So to, to use any of these terms, I think is, is appropriate. Thank you, Suzanne. And with that, I should say that, you know, while we primarily chose the term neurodiversity for, for this podcast as kind of the umbrella term, um, I think the things Courtney mentioned about some of those specific sectors that we're looking at are really important. And, you know, we encourage our listeners, um, whether or not you identify with these terms or if you don't, for whatever reason, we always encourage that feedback. And we want to hear that from you, as I know our guests do, because it's part of what helped propel these studies and this type of research. So we do have to stop here for our first break. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We'll be right back. Looking for more ways to stay informed on federal news? Every Tuesday, the Fed Manager Newsletter delivers completely free, straightforward news to the federal community. The Fed Manager Newsletter features top news stories affecting the federal workforce, legislative updates impacting pay and benefits, understandable summaries of court decisions written by leading federal employment attorneys, and columns from across the federal community. Subscribe today at FedManager.com. Brought to you by the law firm of Shaw, Bransford & Roth, serving the federal community for 40 years. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. I am here with our guests discussing neurodiversity and national security. Let's dive right in. So one of the initial questions I think it's important to ask is really what we know and what the data indicates about the current size of the neurodiverse population within the national security workforce and even the federal workforce generally. Courtney, I know this is something you've looked into. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, this was one of our first questions was how many people are we talking about? And it's an important question if an agency is going to focus on supporting a part of their workforce, like scale, scale matters. And we heard um, EEO officers, high level um, people in HR at, at multiple agencies say things to us like, well, this is just a handful of people. Like, kind of like, this isn't that, this is important, but it's only a handful of people. Like I have women facing gender discrimination. I have black employees facing racial discrimination. They're, you know, 50% of my workforce is affected by those two things. And so we're only talking about four or five people here. And, and that was the perception. And there's really a lack of data for reasons we can go into. <laughs> there's a lack of data on this. So we said, well, let's do a little bit of math. And we did a little bit of math. And we said, according to studies, the entire US population is between five and 20% of people are dyslexic. Somewhere between five and 20%, depending on the study, of Americans are dyslexic. 
Um, 9.4 of percent of all children in the U.S. have been diagnosed with ADHD. So 9% of all children diagnosed with ADHD. And by the way, 60% of them are medicated. So if you want to join the military, we'll talk about that a little later in the hour. Um, and then finally, 2% of the entire U.S. population, adults or children, is autistic. 2%. That 2% is really a global number. Anywhere that study has been done globally, that 2% really holds, holds true. That's not a U.S. Um, data set. Now, the other thing I'll add is as diagnostic tools get better and continue to expand in um, underrepresented neighborhoods where there are plenty of schools where they're not testing kids for these diagnoses, these numbers will go up. And so we're looking at a pretty significant portion of the American population that has at least one of these diagnoses and, and plenty of people have more than one. Well, when you consider that the US national security community is about 3 million people, I think is what we calculated. You know, It's about 1.3 million just active duty military, another 900,000 DOD civilians, a, mil a million in the reserves. And I haven't even gotten to the Department of State, the intelligence community, um, Department of Homeland Security. We were talking about over 3 million people. So the math we did was what if only 1% of that population was neurodivergent? Let's say it's a smaller sample size in the general population because of all the hiring barriers. And let's say it's not the 10% that are autistic or that are dyslexic in the general population and the 2% that are autistic, but it's only 1%. Well, if it was only 1%, it would be 34,000 people. And we have no reason to, to know whether it's 1% or whether it's 12%, but it would be 34,000 people. And so this is a lot of people. And then the next question that people ask is, well, where are they? You know, why don't I see them? Where, where are they all? And that's something I, I think we're going to talk a lot about today as well. So two different intelligence officers came up to Teresa and I at an event. We were at a conference talking about this, at an INSA conference that Suzanne had hosted. And two intelligence officers who have revealed their autistic diagnosis came up to Teresa and I, and they said, our wish is that people like us can live outside the closet. They compared themselves to the LBGTQ community and they said, we just wanna be out of the closet like our LBGTQ colleagues. So to anyone listening who works in any federal entity, I will tell you, there are people in the closet in your organization today with one, at least one of the diagnoses, if not multiple diagnoses that we've described in this report and they don't wanna reveal themselves. And, and there's plenty of reasons why, discrimination, bias, they've been bullied in the past, all of the fears that anyone would have with any kind of disability or any kind of um, diagnosis, not wanting to reveal it, all those come into play here. I, I just want to throw onto that the um, what that causes in the workplace, the stress that that causes, that when you have to spend your whole day every day pretending not to be who you are, some people are really great at it, but it is exhausting. Um, it fries your people out. You'll have a, a um, it'll affect your retention rates because people just burn themselves out. But then also you get you get the emotional breakdowns from people who are just exhausted from spending their day trying to not be who they are because they can't they can't pace or they can't uh, you know talk about how those smells really affect them and things like that. So uh, you know it hits from a couple of angles. It hits from not having the right data, but then it also hits from you're, you're frying your people because they're having to hide it. Thank you, Teresa and Courtney, uh, for, for level setting regarding the population. One thing I want to emphasize, Courtney raised, you know, there's a lot of, there tends to be a mentality, especially within the federal workforce of, I have all these other problems, especially mm -hmm. in the diversity community. You know, there are racial issues, there are gender issues, like how can I tackle all of this at once? And I want to emphasize how intersectional these issues are. I, you know, I can speak for um, the Latino community that I'm a part of of where there it is often the issues we see with you know having to kind of suppress your neurodiversity are even amplified in these communities that have already difficulty in the workplace and so there is no such thing as uh, addressing racial barriers addressing gender barriers without having these conversations because they are intersectional there are conversations that need to happen at the same time so you can really address the unique needs of unique communities um, in a really holistic way 
And part of addressing these needs, I think, starts at the beginning of the employee life cycle with identifying barriers in the recruitment and application process. Can you guys talk a little bit about what some of these barriers are specifically in recruitment and the application process? You know, from, from my experience, it even starts with how you respond to an application, whether it's in the private sector or public sector the length of the application, some of the questions that are asked. I once saw a private sector company for advertising for a position for a neurodiverse individual, and they allowed you instead of a cover letter to submit a PowerPoint, an audio recording or a video recording. And I thought that was a very creative way to still get the information they needed to intake this individual before they had an actual interview versus the standard processes that a lot of organizations go through. And I'll turn it over to you, Courtney. So with many of these diagnoses, first of all, they all have different symptoms, totally different symptoms than each other. But with many of them, the, a few of the more common symptoms are difficulty figure, filling out very long and complex forms. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so USA Jobs, the SF-86, for those who've ever applied for security clearance. Um, and the difficulty is, if I don't know all of the information, does that mean I can't apply for the job? You know, I don't really understand what they mean by this question, so I don't know how to answer it. Does that mean I can't apply for the job? Um, you know, it's, it's all this overthinking, or it's the, the inability to just complete the sheer volume of paperwork and, and get through it all, which just, just creates a barrier. Um, you know, one of the metaphors that I like to use when I'm talking to people is, Imagine a government agency that wants to do equitable hiring that says, you know, no matter what your race, your religion, your gender identity, if you show up, we will give you an interview for the job. Just, just come on in and we will interview you. We're going to interview everyone. And there are 10 stairs leading to the front door with no ramp. That's not equitable. You know, they, they've now automatically weeded out anyone who can't come up 10 stairs. Well, instead of that scenario, now in front of the front door, let's put USA Jobs and let's put the SF-86. And that's basically what we've done is we've created this scenario that makes it very difficult for people to even access the front door to get in. Now, those who did, I mean, there are plenty of people who did and who are in the building already and, and do get jobs because those are the ones who are able to make it through that process. Um, but one of the really common techniques in the commercial sector, in addition to reducing the number of like job application paperwork, is to totally change the interview process. So in large employers, and I'm talking multi-billion dollar multinational employers that are employing neurodiversity um, workforces, will do things like replace the traditional interview with a practical exercise. So instead of the traditional interview is you come in, you make eye contact, you are able to answer the question, tell me about yourself, which is a very vague question that someone has to figure out what things about me do you really need to know? And none of those things will tell you if I'm actually a good accountant. <laughs> That instead of doing that, what they do is they come up with a practical exercise and they say, three days before the interview, I'm going to give you a spreadsheet of data. Let's say this is a financial analyst or accounting position. You're going to analyze the data. Instead of me interviewing you, you're going to present your analysis to me. So I'm going to see how you handle analysis on incomplete data. I'm not going to give you a complete data set. You're going to have to work with incomplete data, just like we do, and your, your presentation skills. And so now I'm not asking you to explain that you have good presentation skills, but you're actually presenting something to me. And it takes the burden off of the candidate to be able to prove that they're likable or prove that they have communication skills and instead shifts it to do they have the technical expertise and the ability to, to con convey um, analytic results. And that's probably what you really wanted to know anyway. So those types of like tactics, those, those changes in application processes, we, we put that all in our report because there's so many organizations that already do this and they've already figured it out. And I want to turn it over to Teresa, but before I do, Courtney mentioned that this is all in the report. I'm going to go one step further. If you're wondering how you could revise your job descriptions, page 25 of the report has a phenomenal <laughs> chart that shows you exactly how you could actually implement this. And I believe it's page 30 of the report that has an example of how a company changed their interview process use these resources. They're there for a reason and it, they're phenomenal breakdowns of how you can actually revise your process to make it more inclusive. Teresa, pick right yeah. up. You're I love it. Thank you. Thank you for plugging that in. I just wanted to step back just a little bit back to that, like you said, about the creating um, better 
Jobrex that uh, that's a that's a no cost thing. You don't have to change your whole process. You just have to clear out all the muck. Um, we know that it's not just neuro distinct individuals that won't apply for a job with too many requirements. Women will too. Anybody from anybody from any community who's been used to being told no is reading your job rec for reasons they can't apply. You need to take out as many of those as you can. And then if you know if there is a whole process they have to go through, you have to get a clearance. You have to do these things. Instead of having to revamp all that right now, what you can do is lay out a really clear process and tell people what you're looking for. You know what? In this set of clearance interviews, what we're looking for is how honest you are and how susceptible you are to uh, being bought out by somebody. So, um, and here's what's going to happen. And here's when it's going to happen. And here's the kinds of things we're going to ask. Here's when you need to have it to us. That kind of clarity is going to dial back so much of folks' anxiety and really, really be helpful without you having to ditch the whole government required system. Thank you, Teresa. And before we move on to the next segment, where we're really going to talk about onboarding the employee. I would like to just, can we preview some of the conversation we'll have in the next segment about the security clearance process? Suzanne, can you just give us a quick overview of what kind of the big barriers in that process are? So I would say the initial barrier is completing on average, I think it's about 130, 128 page SF-86. Um, it can be very lengthy. Some individuals who are neurodiverse may take some of the questions just a little bit too at face versus um, thinking through, um, you know, really the, the response that they, they should have. And so that right there, that's a deterrent for people who are neurotypical, like myself. It's a, it's a lot of paperwork and a lot of information that you have to pull up from the past. Also, you know, there are other areas where people need to disclose answers about um, mental health, and that can be very uncomfortable, I think, for anyone. So that that right there, I think, is, is a bit of a deterrent, even again, for folks who are neurotypical. And then, you know, not all clearances require a polygraph. That's sort of an urban legend. Not everyone has to have a polygraph, depending on what kind of clearance they're getting. But that process, which I think Teresa can speak to a little bit more, um, can also be a deterrent. Some of the masking we talked about and the coping mechanisms mechanisms and people um, maintain in order to answer some of the questions can often be red flags for a polygrapher. Thank you for that preview, Suzanne. I do want to talk more about some of the polygraph issues that arise with Teresa, but we do have to stop here for our second break. We'll continue this discussion after a word from our sponsors. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Looking for more ways to stay informed on federal news? Every Tuesday, the Fed Manager Newsletter delivers completely free, straightforward news to the federal community. The Fed Manager Newsletter features top news stories affecting the federal workforce, legislative updates impacting pay and benefits, understandable summaries of court decisions written by leading federal employment attorneys, and columns from across the federal community. Subscribe today at FedManager.com. Brought to you by the law firm of Shaw, Bransford & Roth, serving the federal community for 40 years. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. I am here with Suzanne Wilson-Heckenberg of the Intelligence and National Security Alliance and Foundation, Teresa Thomas of MITRE Corporation, and Courtney Weinbaum from RAND Corporation. We are discussing diversity in national security, and we're entering the third segment of our program, Halfway Through. At the end of last segment, we talked a little bit about the security clearance process, and we really just hit the tip of the iceberg. I know there's a lot more to discuss here. And Teresa, it is something you've worked with very closely. So can you just kind of keep the conversation going for us? Sure. I think it was really interesting when we started um, trying to find agencies who wanted to pilot a neurodiversity program. I talked to lots and lots and lots of agencies. It took a year to find somebody who would be the first 
And there were two questions every single agency asked me, every single person I talked to, no matter what agency they were from. And the first one was, what about clearances? Um, the second one, by the way, was, can I have data analysts? You can put that one in your pocket. Um, but when I took that back to my researchers at MITRE and I said, what about clearances? They said, well, what do you mean? What about clearances? And I said, I don't think they know what they mean. I think everybody's just afraid of the big boogeyman that is clearances. Um, and so her response was, well, what if it's not an issue? Like, do we even know if it's an issue? So we, you know, we just sort of went on that, we'll find out, I guess. And that turns out it's a thing, not officially, not legally. It doesn't officially disqualify anything. But as we were saying earlier, the stresses involved with almost every stage are something people really have to overcome. Um, I personally have been trying to slog through my SF-86 for many, many more months than it should take. And, you know, my ADHD sees this wall of awful and I shut down and that is not uncommon. But then there's also the interviews. What do they really mean by that? What do they mean by those questions? What are they, what are they trying to get at here? I don't understand the, the euphemisms they're using or the, you know, the assumptions I'm supposed to be making here. And then uh, if you do have to do a poly, there's a whole bunch that goes in that, the, um, the anxiety that goes with it. And then back to that, I need to think through that question. And um, we found, so our, our point of data is anecdotal at this point for that, but we found that uh, we had four externs, three, the three who had uh, polygraphers who had been trained in neurodiversity passed on the first try. The one who had an untrained polygrapher uh, did not pass on the first try. He did pass on the second try when he had a trained polygrapher. And that training was just, if somebody discloses to you that they are on the spectrum, these are the kinds of things you might see. You know, they might avoid eye contact. They might think extra long before they answer a question. They might be breathing in a, such a way to reduce the anxiety that they're feeling in that spot. And, and just the neurophysical reactions that they have are different. And so it became really clear that it's really, really important for polygraphers to know what to do when someone discloses, which I think brings us into the question of um, who's gonna disclose and what are the issues with disclosure? And so um, I know we were gonna talk a little bit about that, some of the issues with whether people consider themselves in need of accommodations or not. I'll talk a little bit more about the clearance process before we even get there, though. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll definitely get there today. So there is a question on the security clearance form, um, not necessarily for secret clearance, but once you go a little higher, that asks the question, do you have a mental health or other health condition that substantially adversely affects your judgment, reliability, and trustworthiness, even if you're not exhibiting symptoms today? And it's a yes or no question. Well, the people who have these, the diagnoses that we studied in this study, you would answer no to that question. You might have other diagnoses, but autism, ADHD, dyslexia doesn't affect your trustworthiness, you know, at least not according to any medical study that I looked at in this research. So you would answer no to that question. So now the security clearance investigator who's even just questioning you, you know, we haven't even gotten to a polygraph. Maybe you don't have a polygraph, but just the person questioning you is aware of no diagnosis. Um, maybe you don't even have a diagnosis. There are plenty of people who are underdiagnosed for these conditions. So maybe you don't have a diagnosis or maybe you do and you don't disclose it. But you have trouble making eye contact. You have trouble answering questions promptly because you're really overthinking. What, what do they really mean by that question? How do I answer it? Um, you, you do a lot of fidgeting. If you're autistic, this might be called stimming, like rocking your body. You know, it's more excessive than what, what we usually think of as fidgeting. And if you're doing all these behaviors in the presence of the investigator, because investigation interviews are in person when we're not under COVID pandemic rules, you know, the investigator is looking at you like you're hiding a lie. You know, you're not making eye contact. You're having trouble answering what they think are very basic, simple questions like, tell me where you lived four years ago. Um, and you're, you're doing this thing with your body. You're, you're physically moving your body in this way. And to them, you look like you're hiding a lie because that's what they've been trained to look for. And because they have not been trained to understand the difference between someone hiding a lie and someone with a neurodivergent diagnosis, they're not aware that such an option exists, that there could be such a difference. And the person on the other side of the table, this poor candidate, 
may have a diagnosis that they're not disclosing for reasons we'll talk about in a minute, or they may not have ever even been diagnosed, particularly if they're not in the white community, because we know that diagnostic tools are much less available in non-white and, and lower socioeconomic communities. So, so you're really disadvantaging these folks, even just in the interview process. I mean, that's not even the polygraph. And then if these people are, um, you know, they're, their internal you know, heart rate, their breathing, their sweat glands are all a little different than, than what's considered normal because when they hear one of these questions, you know, they're reacting internally much differently than a quote unquote normal person react. Well, now you get into the polygraph question. Like, is the polygraph picking up a different heart rate, a different breathing and a different amount of sweat because there's physiological differences if you're on the autism spectrum or is it because you're a counterintelligence threat? And we are aware of no study that's ever been done to answer that question, either of those questions. Thank you, Courtney and Teresa. That was a really great overview. I do wanna flag for our audience, one of the things that we're talking here is the difference between the kind of formal barriers that are in the law on the form, um, as well as some of these informal barriers, which is really where our conversation today is focusing on. If you are curious about some of the more kind of formal legal issues, such as understanding what is um, a mental illness that impacts trustworthiness or a psychological condition that impacts trustworthiness. We did do a show on this in October 2021 with Perry Russell Hunter, the director of the Defense Office of Hearing and Appeals. It is called Who You Gonna Call? Security Clearance Mythbusters. Um, I encourage you guys to go and listen to that for a better sense of what those formal structures are. Perry spent a significant amount of time talking about the psychological condition question and what it really means. And one of the things he highlighted was that it, it really is a very small subset of mental health conditions. And he is very focused on countering the stigma that is associated um, with, with things like the neurodiversity that we're talking about today. So I highly encourage you guys to listen to that. One of the things that both Courtney and Teresa highlighted was this disclosure issue. Um, Courtney, can you talk a little bit about, you know, really where that comes in, and particularly what we call the accommodations dilemma once an employee is brought on? Yeah, this was a big aha for us. Uh, so we started by interviewing people who are in um, senior human resources roles in the Department of Defense, the people who kind of run HR or EEO for, you know, the entire Department of the Army, Department of the Air Force, you know, large organizations. And they said, there's no problem here. You know, they, they said that, you know, if someone is applying for this job, they go get a Schedule A letter for disability. And once you get a Schedule A letter for disability, all of a sudden you have all the accommodations you could possibly want. You know, if you want your interview to be a little bit different, you know, whatever accommodations you need are suddenly available to you with this letter. It's like they, they described it as the golden ticket to, to solving all these problems. And so then we started doing interviews elsewhere. And what was really interesting in this study that we haven't even gotten a chance to touch on yet is once word got out that we were doing this study, my phone started ringing. <laughs> And it started ringing by people who would say, I'm in the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, CIA, um, DIA, NGA. I have a diagnosis and I've never disclosed it. And I want you to hear my story. And, you know, I, we weren't intending to interview people on their personal experiences because we, we didn't want anything that can like jeopardize someone's, um, someone's career. Someone, you know, we don't want to out people. But people started calling us and they wanted their stories heard. And every single person who reached out to us said, I've never disclosed my diagnosis before. Why, why would I do that? I'm not disabled. I don't consider myself disabled. I don't need an accommodation for a disability. And what became very clear to us is the government looks at these diagnoses as very binary. If you have one, you have a disability. If you don't have one, you don't. Whereas we know that these diagnoses are spectrums. They're spectrums of, of need. So we give two metaphors in the report. Um, one, we try and highlight, you know, imagine if back when the military started allowing women to serve, they said to the women, you can serve, you'll wear the same unisex uniform as the men. This is not a hypothetical. This is what actually happened. <laughs> and they said, women can wear the same unisex uniform as the men. And while, yeah, I mean, a woman could put on a man's clothes and, and shoes, it's extremely uncomfortable. 
And when you get into body armor, we know that it actually causes physical damage to a woman's body to wear male body armor. And imagine if women serving the military needed to claim a disability to get an accommodation to wear a gendered uniform. And they'd physically be othered, they'd be walking around in these different clothes. I mean, imagine the, the stress, the, the discrimination, the bias that would come, the demoralizing effects that would come with this. And so then we give another example and we talk about vision. I'm sitting here talking to you wearing eyeglasses, no one could see that, but I'm nearsighted. I am not disabled. There is no employer in the world that would consider me disabled just because I wear eyeglasses. There are people who have vision diagnoses that are disabled and they do consider themselves disabled and they do need accommodations. Well, why can't we treat neurodivergent diagnoses similar to vision? Some people are colorblind, some people have problems with depth perception, some are nearsighted, some are farsighted. And for some people, those challenges are so severe that they would self-identify as disabled and request accommodation. But the fact that I need eyeglasses doesn't prevent me from being recruited by the army. The army doesn't look at me and say, oh, you're disabled, you know, you, you can't serve or any other military service. Yet for some of these diagnoses, they're treated in either the civilian force or the military force as binary, as either have it or you don't. And so you have to be labeled as disabled or not. And we call this the accommodations dilemma. You know, it's a real dilemma for people. Research shows that when people declare a disability in the workplace, they still to this day face more discrimination and more bias than people who do not identify as being disabled. There's still studies that in 2023, this is still a challenge. So these fears are well-founded. And I think the analogy you raised, particularly with people who wear glasses, when I was reading your report, it, the simple fix for some people could just be wearing noise-canceling headphones. And to me, that's very similar to just like wearing a pair of reading glasses. But in order to get to that place and to be able to even just wear those noise-canceling headphones if in, for example, a SCIF for relevant for the National Security Workforce, it is a barrier and it does require some form of disclosure. And that just in and of itself makes it more difficult for us to have that inclusive workforce. As we move into the next segment, we're going to talk more about some of the issues specific with the military and active duty community. And I know um, we can have Suzanne jump in to talk about why neurodiverse individuals are actually great for this workforce, but some of these barriers are preventing us from being able to really tap into that talent. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We'll be right back after our last break. Looking for more ways to stay informed on federal news? Every Tuesday, the Fed Manager Newsletter delivers completely free, straightforward news to the federal community. The Fed Manager Newsletter features top news stories affecting the federal workforce, legislative updates impacting pay and benefits, understandable summaries of court decisions written by leading federal employment attorneys, and columns from across the federal community. Subscribe today at FedManager.com. Brought to you by the law firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth, serving the federal community for 40 years. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are entering the last segment of our show, so let's dive right in. Um, last segment, we talked a lot about the security clearance process, the accommodations dilemma, and I want to start this segment by talking about why neurodiverse employees are actually a huge benefit for organizations, particularly in cleared positions. Suzanne, can you tell us a little bit about your perspective on this? Yes, thank you, Natalia. So a couple of folks have heard me say this before, but you've met one neurodiverse person, you've met one neurodiverse person. We can't lump everybody into the same category with it, whether it's their strengths, um, their gifts, or, or their challenges. But I, I do think often individuals that are neurodiverse, um, particularly those that are on the autism spectrum, tend to be more rule followers. And that often could contribute to them being cleared more easily, whether it's um, what they do socially, their finances, um, even social media. I, I think that they often um, are, are more apt to be clearable than maybe some other folks. And then also their attention to detail often, their diversity that they add to a team and whether it's pattern recognition, but we all talk about the strength of diverse teams. And I definitely think when we're talking about diversity, we need to think about neurodiversity as well. 
absolutely. That's a really great point, Suzanne. You know, just thinking about it, I don't have the background as a subject matter expert in these areas, but hearing about how, you know, they take the more uh, neurodiverse people do tend to take a more literalist approach to questions. It's just so easy for me to think about how beneficial that can be, especially as someone who, you know, reads a question and tends to generalize. And, you know, that's something I've had to unlearn and, you know, really ask, what am I being asked? That's something I learned about in school all the time. And so, you know, someone with those innate talents really critical for teams um, across the federal workforce. One of the things that the study focused on is the unique problems facing the military and the active duty uh, workforce. And on our show, we have a lot of listeners who work in military HR. And so I think it's very important for us to have the conversation about the unique issues um, that active duty military members face, those who are diverse particularly. So having done the study, Teresa, Courtney, can, can one of you talk about that a bit more? That is not my area of expertise, but I do know that um, it is service to service. In many services, um, having an autism diagnosis can be an automatic disqualifier for um, active duty service, but it can be waived. And it's a fairly simple waiver if you are willing to declare this disability, <laughs> you know, to, to Courtney's point from earlier, but uh, it, get re it gets reevaluated every year. So you're mm -hmm. sort of living on the edge throughout your whole career. Um, you know, it's sometimes depending on the whims of who's doing that evaluation every year, if you have a diagnosis. So that is one. I know that in some, it's it's not an automatic disqualification, but it does still depend on who your recruiter is and who, who you're talking to as you come in to whether they see that as a liability or not. And the onus is on this fresh-faced new recruit who has to prove that, uh, that it's not going to be an issue for them. So... And then there are the long-term things uh, with medication. There's there's just so many nuances to it. Um, I heard from somebody earlier this week who mentioned it's a real problem for military kids who've grown up in the military medical system. There is you know documentation of all the medications they've ever been on, of all the diagnoses they've ever had, and so kids who want to follow their parents into the military often have a harder time because they're, they have to, not only do they have to prove that they're worthy of joining, they have to prove sometimes contrary to what a recruiter might be reading in their medical documentation. So there's so many more, I know Courtney, there were so many things that came up with military. So, you know, I know, yeah, I know we, I'm butchering this, it. This came, absolutely, this came up a lot. Um, what was really interesting to me that I want your audience to hear because they're not going to their services, but they told this to me, is multiple active duty service members from multiple services, not just one service, said, I have a diagnosis and I've never told my service before, so I'm keeping it a secret, or I'll get diagnosed after I retire. It's not worth losing my career over. So that tells me a couple of things. That tells me that, first of all, a your military service has active duty members who have these diagnoses, and plenty of them are autistic and ADHD, because those are the people I talk to. Um, those are the diagnoses of the people who called me. Um, that's, that's the first point that, that people need to realize. So if you think that if, if you're leading a military service or military workforce, and you think that disqualifying people for these diagnoses is helping military readiness. Well, the people you have in the service are just hiding it from you. They have the diagnoses too, or they're intentionally not getting diagnosed. Um, so that's, that's one important point I think people need to be aware of just to realize that this already exists in every military service. Um, but the next point is that for people who are serving, um, it's a real risk that I'm going to be medically discharged or, or otherwise discharged if my diagnosis becomes known. There was a example in the news just last year when we were doing the study of a cadet, I forgot if it was a cadet or a ROTC student at a college whose scholarship was pulled after his autism diagnosis became known. So in other words, this person had autism and was already serving in, in ROTC, um, in ROTC, and they weren't, they weren't, um, they didn't lose their scholarship because of performance reasons. Now, you know, maybe there are some people who do for performance reasons. But you know, these are examples that we hear of people who are active duty or people who are you know, trying to enter who are getting told by recruiters um, that they aren't qualified for a diagnosis that they have succeeded in life up to this point with. You know, some of them are college graduates. I mean, you have people who are college graduates, plenty of them with these diagnoses. I know 
The military is recruiting for both college level graduates as well as not. Um, but you have plenty of people who have these diagnoses today, especially when you look at the numbers of children who are being diagnosed with ADHD. And then the other challenge, the, the last challenge that we already identified in our study is the prescription medication policies. So you know, you're not considered deployable in most cases if you're on prescription medicines. Well, ADHD meds are extremely effective for many people, um, but they're not essential life-threatening medicines. You know, if I don't take my ADHD meds, I'm not gonna have a cardiac event. I'm not gonna have a psychotic breakdown in a deployed operating environment, but they're very helpful medications to take um, and they, they help people get through the day. And so while there are people who, yes, absolutely need their medications every day and, and can't function without it, there are also people who could serve with medications. And then if they were ever in a deployed war zone environment, they would do just fine too. But this blanket policy is a huge hurdle for people um, getting access to resources that in the civilian population, they have no problem accessing. One of the things you guys have discussed really reminds me of a show we did last summer um, with Assistant Secretary of Defense for Readiness, the Honorable Sean Skelly, and she discussed um, how in it was on pride in government about how many members of the LGBTQ community are already serving within our workforce. And this is about making them feel comfortable to bring their whole self to work um, and making sure that they are really included in the work we're doing in our government because it's so important. And it reminds me of what Teresa said in the first segment of our show, which is how when employees have to hide this part of themselves, it leads to burnout. We can't retain employees. There's attrition problems because we're forcing the employee to hide something that is so important to them. And hearing Courtney talk about people who forgo diagnosis, to me, that's people forgoing not only their true self, but assistance that they could gain to make their life easier and make them even more productive and successful employees. This report that was done um, by the RAND Corporation, Neurodiversity and National Security, how to tackle national security challenges with a wider range of cognitive talents. It's going to be linked in the description for this show. I cannot emphasize enough how much I recommend all of our listeners check this out, whether it's the six page version or the 50 page version, it is an absolutely worthwhile and critical read and it will only enhance your ability to serve your workforce. Unfortunately, this is all the time we have for today's show. We do need to wrap this up. Courtney, Teresa, and Suzanne, thank you so much for joining me and for being part of this conversation. Thank you for having us. And to all of our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Fed Talk is brought to you by the Federal Employment Law Firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Have a great weekend.